It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Stocks for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. We don't believe in good markets or bad markets. I don't have patience for people who say, oh, well, it's a bad market. I can't make money. But, you know, maybe next year will be better. No, no. We need to find ways to do well now. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Can the Federal Reserve cause inflation by raising rates? Aren't higher rates supposed to reduce inflation? Joining me in this episode is the counterintuitively intuitive Gary Broad from Deep Knowledge Investing. Hey, Gary. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me back. Great to be speaking to you again. That's great to be speaking, but we were just talking off air and it's <laughs> the world is a depressing place at the moment. And we've been through a lot since our last discussion, bond prices soaring, plunging markets, and now another war. Anything else to add? Sure. Yeah. If we're keeping track <laughs> of bad news, the Japanese yen just went above 150 yen to the dollar. That is going to cause the Bank of Japan to have to sell US treasuries to buy yen or alternatively let their 10-year bond fall. The Bank of Japan has been protecting that. And for a long time, they were keeping the rate on that at or near zero and then 50 basis points. Now they say they're not going to intervene until it hits 1%. But either way, what's going to happen here is the carry trade has to unwind. So when that happens, they're going to be selling huge amounts of treasuries, raising rates here in the United States and trying to protect the yen. And that activity will work in the short term, long term, it's futile. Uh, in addition to all of that, we've got an energy problem, an energy infrastructure problem that no one serious is even trying to solve, you know, in the United States. And, and I think you guys have similar things going on in Australia. But in the United States, the government has this idea that everyone's going to drive electric cars, but we don't have the electricity generation infrastructure or the electricity transmission infrastructure to charge these cars and nobody's building that. So that's a big problem. It's also why we own uranium. And then, you know, the final thing I'd add is we're looking at all of this with a market at a very high level. Earnings estimates a little over a year ago on the S&P 500 for this year went from 260 last year, uh, $260 to right now around 219 and the market's up in that time. So you know, other than that, everything's great. <laughs> so we're recording on October 25. And of course, we've just seen another plunge in the S&P 500 and most of the major markets in the US as well. So it seems to be the bad news just still seems to be compounding, doesn't it? And I think the S&P 500 has now wiped out all the gains for 2023. Yeah, it has for, for a lot of it. Not all of it. The thing that's that's really interesting about this is the market breadth is horrendous. And so, you know, that sounds again like a technical term, but it's really simple. You know, the market was up about 20% earlier this year, maybe a little bit more. And all of those gains had come from seven large tech companies, right? NVIDIA, the, the leader among them, but, you know, included companies like Microsoft, Google, Apple, 
Amazon, you know, the usual, they, now they're calling them the Magnificent Seven. It used to be the FANG stocks and the FANG MG stocks. And now yeah, we don't hear, the you don't hear FANG very much anymore, do you? Yeah, no, now, now it's the Magnificent Seven. We keep rebranding it. But, you know, even when the market was up 20, 25%, all of those gains had come from seven stocks. The other 493 stocks in the index were flat to down on the year. And, you know, now we're seeing a situation where you have a huge percentage of the S&P 500 that's down on the year, small caps are down on the year. And so, you know, the relative strength in the market indexes is masking huge falls in the equity market because we have, you know, these indexes are capitalization weighted. And what that means is that these companies that have a market cap of a trillion, two trillion, three trillion dollars, they just have an outsized influence on the entire index. We're basing this discussion on your recently published article, Can Federal Reserve Rate Hikes Cause Inflation? Counterintuitive Inflation. You mentioned government spending as the main driver of inflation. What is the scale of government spending? We've discussed this before, but I think it's worthwhile revisiting how big it is. Yeah. So we in, here in the US, we've gone straight through insane to ludicrous. And now for those of you who are Mel Brooks fans, we've gone plaid. We have hit the inflection point where spending is creating more spending. And the issue that we have is we keep having emergencies. And when there are emergencies, the government just sprays money at the problem. And the problem is it's never treated as emergency funding. That's just the baseline for future funding. And so, you know, if we go back just a couple of decades, you know, President Bush was, he was a big spender. And that was the case when he had a Republican Congress and the case when he had a Democratic Congress. And then, you know, at the end of his term, we hit the great financial crisis and we threw, you know, a trillion dollars at uh, $800 billion at TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which is a bank bailout. And then President Obama comes in and he takes this as the baseline and ramps up spending. And he ends up running US debt to a level where the debt generated when he was president was greater than that for all other presidents combined. And, you know, he was talking about a trillion dollars of shovel-ready infrastructure projects. Phil, I don't know anybody who's ever seen any of these infrastructure projects completed or, you know, a shovel in the ground. You know, our government is pretending, and we've gone from treating infrastructure as things that have long-term productive uses, things like bridges, roads, dams, you know, the Hoover Dam, things that generate electricity or help people get around. That would be real infrastructure, which helps create economic growth over a long period of time. And now they've relabeled consumption as infrastructure. The last infrastructure plan, something like 93% of it, only 7% of it was actual infrastructure. 93% of it was just social use spending. And you know it's fine if you want to do that, but all you're doing is taking tomorrow's demand and pulling it forward. So to give you a sense, so can I can I just yeah. repeat that point again? Please. What, what are you saying that infrastructure spending or some some things that are being classified as infrastructure spending are actual social spending? Yeah, that wow. is. It is <laughs> the ability of politicians to lie while pretending they know what they're talking about. And I, look, I want to be clear on this. Both parties do it. It's a bipartisan problem here. And then, you know, by the way, remember, we hit COVID. And so, you know, President Trump sprayed more money into the economy. 
And that got taken as the baseline. And now we have increased emergency spending off of that. So every time we have an emergency, we throw a few trillion dollars at it. And then the next president says, oh, good. Okay. Well, that's the amount we're spending now. And we just need to spend a little more for infrastructure, except infrastructure isn't infrastructure. It's social spending. And again, it's simply consumption pulled forward. And the thing that everybody's forgetting is, you know, you can do that, but the people who are going to get the bill are future you and your future kids and grandkids, right? And people are acting like we can do this with no cost at all, but that's simply not the case. We're just deferring it. Just like, you know, if you and I were to go out to eat, we go for a really nice meal, the bill comes to, you know, it's an expensive meal, it comes to a few hundred dollars and we pay for it with our credit card and we say, oh, see, look, the meal was free. I have all the cash I walked into the restaurant with. I still have that cash in my pocket. Yeah, well, great, except when we pay the credit card bill, that's a few hundred dollars. We don't have to buy groceries, right? We're just pulling consumption forward and delaying the expense. But just the fact that you're not paying for it today doesn't make it free. But let's go back to your original question, which is how crazy has it gotten? So we just had last June, July, a big, you know, the big government shutdown fight, which I'm going to tell you was just simply drama and hysteria. Right? People were acting like it was going to be the end of civilization, except the US government has shutdowns all the time. Every time people act like it's the end of the republic, we do this all the time. There's you know fighting somewhere between two days and a few weeks, and then it gets resolved. And this time, when it got resolved, Kevin McCarthy, who was then the Republican Speaker of the House, claimed that you know he'd won this great victory against excessive spending. And the Democrats came out and they said, oh my God, the Republicans are horrible, heartless people. They want to cut spending. Everybody's going to starve to death. The whole country is going to starve, Phil, because Kevin McCarthy, you know, negotiated. Except here's how dishonest the accounting is. It's so dishonest that the US government treats a reduction in the growth rate of spending as a spending cut. So we're here at these ridiculous spending levels. And if we say, okay, well, you know, we're going to spend. 10% more a year for every year. And then they cut that down to spending 8% more a year. They say, oh my God, we have spending cuts. People are going to starve. No, it's not spending cuts. For for everybody who remembers their high school calculus, it's a second derivative calculation. It's a change in the rate of change, but we're increasing spending. We're increasing spending every year. There are no spending cuts. The government isn't cutting spending anywhere on anything. So where we are right now, that horrible deal, that supposed you know horrible compromise, basically ensured that we're spending unlimited amounts of everything. And the deal they cut was to overspend by $4 trillion over the next year and a half through the next election. Kind of funny that they fund it through the next election because they want to hand out free stuff. Okay, great. So we start with debt of in the neighborhood of $33 trillion. That's just the on-balance sheet. To that, we're adding $2 trillion a year, all right? And that doesn't sound like a big number because it's just two. I feel it's two. How, how big is it two? And nobody really can- but what's, what's the percentage of a quadrillion dollars now? <laughs> yeah, right. We're Exactly. We're going to get there. And so, you know, just to point out how ridiculous it is, because the human mind is not capable of holding a trillion anything in our heads. It's just not a number that we're familiar with, but that's 2,000 billions or 2 million millions. Numbers are too big to understand. And here's the thing, even that is hugely understated, 
right? Because the US government has about $200 trillion of off-balance sheet liabilities. This is like using your credit card and saying, hey, I don't have to pay for this. And people ask, what are off-balance sheet liabilities? They're simply obligations that we've taken on but haven't spent yet. Things like pensions, social security, Medicare, Medicaid, all of these promises to provide people with a certain quality of life. And now retirement for a lot of people is 20, 25, 30 years, more than a quarter century. They're expecting to not work and be taken care of. And you know, people might say, hey, Gary, that's cruel of you to point that out. No, I'm simply pointing out that the math doesn't work. The math doesn't work when people expect to spend almost a quarter century preparing to work They spend 40 or 50 years working, and then they're going to spend another quarter century in retirement. There is no universe where a society can support large numbers of people not working for half a century. I'm I'm just pointing out the obvious. But those off-balance sheet liabilities are costing us roughly another $6 trillion a year. That's being added to our obligations, but not included in the debt. So that's we're, we're running basically on and off balance sheet deficits about $8 trillion a year. And then because we have, we've taken on so much debt and interest rates are rising, as the old low cost debt rolls off and we have to replace that with, you know, the US 10 year right now is right around 5%, depending on what happens with Japan, it could easily go over 5% in the next couple of days. That will lead to so we, we've had an increase in spending from you know 400 billion in interest expense a decade ago to 600 billion in interest expense a few years ago. Now we're at a trillion dollars of interest expense, and as this debt rolls off, we can expect that over the next few years we're going to have another 500 billion to one trillion dollars of interest expense coming. And to give people a sense of how quickly this can happen. So I told you we're going to overspend by two trillion dollars this year on balance sheet. Well, if they do that, you know, with 10, 20, 30 year debt, those are all right now yielding around 5%. And so the interest expense on this year's extra borrowing alone will cost $100 billion. These are real numbers. So again, you know, we, we've gone past ludicrous into plaid and this is just, it is not sustainable. It's not controllable and it's not stoppable. Gary, if I could ask a stupid question here, which is my speciality, (laughs) I was talking to a friend and I was quoting some figures like this to him, and he was very blithe and brushed them off and say, well, what's the size of the US GDP? What is the size of the US GDP and how does it relate to the debt? Yeah, so your friend is, is not being completely honest about the problem here. You know, US GDP is around $30 trillion, give or take a little bit. You know, part of that is inflation, right? If buying power of the dollar is down, producing more GDP, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you can keep producing the same amount. But we're in a situation right now where, you know, debt to GDP is somewhere in the neighborhood of 130%. But, you know, what do we do when the excess spending is $2 trillion, and then we're going to have another trillion on top of that, and then the off-balance sheet liabilities. And if you add all of this together, first of all, that additional $3 trillion a year, maybe two and a half next year, going to $3 trillion, that number will be monetized. And that's just a fancy way of saying that we'll issue debt, and the treasury will print currency units, in this case, the dollar, 
and spray that into the economy. And so we're going to pay for it, but instead of paying for it through taxes, we're going to pay for it through future inflation. And so, you know, it's easy for him to say, oh, well, why is that a big deal? It's no problem. Well, when people's grocery bills go up 20, 30%, when their car payments are $1,000 a month, when they can't afford their rent, that's going to be a huge problem. And that's where we're headed. Spraying another two, $3 trillion of currency into the economy every year, that leads to inflation. And we saw how much unrest and how much unhappiness we had. You know, last year, the technically the CPI finished the year, you know, I think it was something like 8%, 7-8% for the full year. And we went absolutely bananas. And with good reason. People are right to be angry about it. I'm not criticizing the people who are angry about it. But that's it's just not an honest accounting of the problem because when you put that much currency into the system you're going to have inflation and when people can't afford their groceries they're going to be very unhappy you know the other thing that i would add is just looking at the on balance sheet number is misleading right if we look at 200 trillion dollars of off balance sheet liabilities and another 33 going to you know 35 36 trillion over the next few years of on balance sheet, we're looking at a quarter of a quadrillion dollars of obligations that can't be paid. It won't be paid. There's no level of taxation, GDP growth, asset confiscation. There is nothing that anybody in the world can do to pay a quarter of a quadrillion dollars of obligations. So we're, we're beyond bankrupt. We're in double super bankruptcy and continuing to dig. So your friend is looking at you know, this year's additional debt compared to the whole size of the U.S. economy was not looking at the whole balance sheet. And uh, that's the issue that I would take with that analysis. And I hope you don't mind me being critical of your friend's position. No, you've just given me some great ammunition for when I see him tonight at the trivia. <laughs> Go get him. Stick him with a bill for dinner. <laughs> Good idea. Are you looking for unbiased, in-depth market insights? Deep Knowledge Investing is dedicated to providing conflict-free, well-researched stock ideas. Gary Broad is a 30-year Wall Street hedge fund veteran. Turn to the good side. He's dedicated to providing you with independent and timely market commentary. Deep Knowledge Investing is supported by a large, successful and highly engaged board of advisors who provide expert advice and insights in a variety of fields and industries. Gary appears regularly on this podcast, so you can check out his insights for yourself and see if he's the right guy for you. Receive 50% off a Deep Knowledge Investing subscription by using the promo code STOCKSFORBEGINNERS50, that's 5-0. By using this promo code, you can subscribe for six months for only $100 or check it out for a month for only $25. That's deepknowledgeinvesting.com and use the promo code STOCKSFORBEGINNERS50. By using this code, you'll be helping to support this podcast. Deep Knowledge Investing, helping you to beat the market. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. So, rate hikes are supposed to tame inflation, but how can they be inflationary in and of themselves? 
So normally they wouldn't be. And if it helps, let's go through a quick explanation of what the Federal Reserve is trying to do. What happens when interest rates are too low is you have a situation where people are desperate for yield. And so everything gets funded. That doesn't cost you anything or very much. And all kinds of bad ideas get ridiculous funding and it blows up a huge asset bubble. And that's you know what they're talking about when they talk about an economy becoming overheated. People are just desperately grabbing for assets. There's no cost to taking on debt, future obligations. And so your asset prices go through the roof, your inflation starts. And that's why you have a situation that you know people talk about an overheated economy. So when the Fed raises interest rates, it almost has the effect of pulling money out of the economy to try to slow things. It makes funding the next thing more expensive or you know much more dangerously for companies that are over leveraged when they have to refinance they're going to have to refinance at much higher rates and that's going to crush profitability and reduce the amount of currency flooding into the economy and they're trying to slow things down and take inflationary pressure out of the market and interest rate changes interest rate increases are a crude tool for this but they're effective historically this is the kind of thing that does work And so what's different this time is we were just talking about the massive debt of the US government, right? So we're, you know, $33 trillion now that'll go to, you know, $36, $37 trillion over the next year and a half. And when you have that much debt, the problem is we just had interest rates go from right around zero to about 5%. And so, you know, we were talking about, okay, you know, another $2 trillion of borrowing. Well, that's another $100 billion of interest expense just for this year alone. Then the next year, that gets added in, right? So you're financing the next $2 trillion, That's another $100 billion plus the first $100 billion plus another 5% on that. So now it's $205 billion, And that's just on the borrowing from this year and next year. And then remember that every year we have debt rolling off. And so when you have, you know, your 0% debt rolling off, and it's not zero, but it's, you know, very small. A lot of, you know, for years the 10-year was trading below 1%. When that debt rolls off, it has to be refinanced with new 5% paper. And that will increase interest expense. And so one of the things we talked about is these bills are not going to be paid through taxation. They're going to be paid for through inflation, right? So mm. instead of financing $2 trillion, they'll finance $2.2 trillion or $2.5 trillion. Or like I said, over the next few years, we're going to have an extra trillion dollars of interest expense. And so when that happens, that's just added to a budget where we're already over budget. And so all of that borrowing, even the interest on the... We're basically in Ponzi scheme territory, right? A Ponzi scheme is where you're paying people out with the proceeds from your next investors. And so we basically have to issue debt in order to pay the interest on prior debt. This isn't somewhat like a Ponzi scheme. This isn't kind of like a Ponzi scheme. This is exactly what a Ponzi scheme is, right? We're printing dollars to pay the interest on the dollars that we printed yesterday. This is a mess. And so if the thing that's causing inflation is the government monetizing our debt, having your interest expense go from 600 billion to 1.5 or 1.6 trillion means you have to monetize another trillion dollars a year of this debt. 
and that's inflationary, right? Throwing trillions of dollars a year of excess government spending into the economy causes prices to rise. And by the way, this part is not the fault of the Federal Reserve. Let's please blame where it belongs. The Federal Reserve is responsible for blowing up a massive asset bubble by keeping interest rates at or around zero for almost a decade and a half. That is 100% on them. Powell's doing the right thing right now. There's nothing else he can do. But the rest of this problem is being created by Congress, overspending by both parties, and the American people who are screaming for low taxes and lots of free stuff and will vote out any politician who even begins to talk about any kind of fiscal sanity. And I'm defining fiscal sanity as living within your budget like every household of every person listening to this podcast has to do. We all live within our budget. The US government has decided that they can magically run the currency printers and that somehow the rules of economics don't apply. And you know, unfortunately, all the Keynesians are going to find out that yeah, it works for a while. And then, you know, as Margaret Thatcher said, you run out of other people's money and then it's a problem. Yeah. And I think even Keynes said that these were only temporary measures and then the budgets would have to be brought back into order. And this is so insane when it seems quite recently that governments actually had to go and sell a program, understanding that it would be taxpayers' money that would be funding these programs. And taxpayers were kind of made aware of this. And I just wanted to preface all this by also mentioning that here in Australia, we had a conservative government from 1996 to 2007 that for most of that time ran a budget in surplus. <laughs> and it just seemed so long ago because, of course, after that, when the, the more of a left-leaning government came into power and uh, the global financial crisis hit and they started spraying money against the wall and it's just gone backwards ever since. Phil, let's cover that in a way that would make sense to people. Be, everybody listening to this podcast handles a household budget. They all understand this stuff. So let's go back, you know, a few decades, a hundred years, whatever it was. And, you know, we typically had a situation where in the United States, the Democrats wanted to be the Santa Claus of free stuff. You don't have to work. We're going to give you everything you need. The Republicans wanted to be the Santa Claus of tax cuts, right? Don't worry. You won't have to pay for anything. Okay, fair enough. And where you had a reasonable push-pull between those options is people would say, okay, well, you know, we want a government program to do X, Y, and Z, and this is what it's going to cost. And the American people had to pay for that spending in their taxes. And they understood that as they wrote their check to pay their tax bill, that that was going to Washington. And if they felt like they were writing a really big tax bill and not happy with the level of government services they were receiving, then they could be justifiably angry at Washington, vote people out, and put in people who were more fiscally conservative. And vice versa, the opposite could happen. If we had a situation where there was great demand for social services and people were flush and they sat at their kitchen table when they wrote that tax check, it didn't seem like that much. People were inclined to say, okay, well, let's be more generous, more charitable, more helpful to people. And basically the check and balance in American finances was the people writing the check for their taxes and they knew where to direct that anger. And so now we have a situation where the US government has somehow discovered this, you know, ridiculous Keynesian modern monetary theory on steroids where 
we don't have to pay for anything, but we can afford everything. And so what they're doing is they're overspending by trillions of dollars a year. That's being financed by creation of currency units. Again, in this case, it's the dollar. And when all of that excess currency enters the economy, we end up with inflation. And people know they don't like it. They know they don't like paying $4, $5, $6 in California for a gallon of gas when they have to fill their tank. They don't like having $1,000 a month car payments. They don't like not being able to afford the rent. And you know, regardless of what calculation the government gives us for food inflation, I'm calling complete another nonsense on that because people's grocery bills in many cases are up 30, 40, 50%. The problem is they don't know who to hold accountable and they don't know who to be angry at. And we're seeing all of this rhetoric here in the United States that all of this is it's being caused by Vladimir Putin. It's being caused by greedy corporations. Yeah, let's just take a minute and think about this. So corporations weren't greedy in 2019, 2020, 2015. Like all of a sudden, two years ago, corporations decided, you know what? We just really want to make a lot of money and hurt people. That's ridiculous, right? Corporations are always trying to make money. They didn't all of a sudden get greedy and cause inflation. Now, the person who has taken this to the most hilarious extreme. I don't know if you followed what's going on in Argentina right now, but the political situation there is fascinating. Argentina, after Zimbabwe, has been the poster child for 20th and 21st century inflation. And these guys default on their debt every 15 years to 15 minutes. And I've spent time there. And it's a fascinating place. I love the Argentinian people. I love their food, their culture, their warmth. It is a fantastic place, but the people who live there have to spend an enormous amount of time, money, energy, and effort trying to protect the value of their pesos. The inflation rate there is well over 100%. It's more than 10% per month. So try to imagine, you know, you bring home your paycheck, and if you don't spend that money immediately, every month you're losing 10% of the value. That's not in a year, that's in a month. They have no way to save, and so they're all busy trying to convert money into dollars and into Bitcoin and into hard assets. It is a huge mess there. So they ended up with a candidate who really grabbed people's attention. He's an anarcho-capitalist. He's a pro-Bitcoin guy. He wants to dollarize their economy. And you know, for everything I've said about the dollar being a mess, and I stand behind everything I said, it's held up well because everybody else's currency is worse. For every stupid thing the US government is doing right now, the other major world governments are doing things even worse, and that's keeping the dollar in a position of strength. So he wants to convert from the peso to the dollar. They'll probably start using Bitcoin. He wants to slash government spending. And his opponent, who won the first round of voting, there will be another round of voting, but his opponent actually offered people no taxes. So just think that one through. It wasn't no new taxes. It was no taxes. He's telling people that, hey, we're Argentina. We are going to, 40% of their population is on public assistance. So yeah, we're going to continue to provide you massive amounts of government assistance, government services, welfare spending. We are going to provide everybody with everything. And don't worry, everyone, you don't have to pay for it. Well, you know, he's right. They can keep printing pesos and everybody will pay for it through an even higher rate of inflation. But, you know, that's kind of the end game on this. And, you know, the U.S. Congress, rather than looking at this as a warning, 
they seem to be looking at and saying, oh, good, there's a model. These guys are ahead of us. We can catch up. And that's a bad idea. It ends badly for everybody. And I would love, it's it's not going to happen, but I would love for us to go back to a situation where the government didn't spend more than it took in and where people wrote out, instead of having your wages basically garnished by the government, right, with withholding, and if you overpay, you get this wonderful tax return, you know, you, you get a refund on your taxes and people are like, oh, great, the government gave me money. No, you overpaid all year and they're sending back some of that overpayment. I would love a situation where at the end of the year, people had to write one massive check to the government. And then after that happens, let's have a real national conversation on what the legitimate size of government is and how much of a role they should have in the economy. And I guarantee you, if we presented them with paying for their stimmies and free stuff and government services by writing a check at the kitchen table instead of through inflation, we'd have a real conversation on it really quickly, but that's not going to happen. So Gary, the world is screwed, but your portfolio needn't be. (laughs) (laughs) How are you looking at that? Are there any opportunities in all of this mess? There always are. You know, Phil, one of the things that makes me laugh is when the Fed keeps interest rates at zero or around zero for a decade and a half, it blows up a huge asset bubble. And that's what we saw. We saw stock prices going through the roof. And this makes a lot of sense. And it's why last year when the Fed started raising interest rates, the stock market dove, right? You had the major indexes at one point down 30 plus percent. And so you have a lot of people who have this sense that, well, we just need the Fed to lower rates and then we can make money. And my response to that is why? Why? If you need the Federal Reserve to blow up an asset bubble to make money, then you should not be charging for your services as an asset manager. Then you're simply somebody who's bought the market and you're waiting for somebody to hand you policies so that you can skim off the top. There's really no skill to that. And at Deep Knowledge Investing, one of our mantras is we're going to roll with the changes. There's no whining. We don't believe in good markets or bad markets. I don't have patience for people who say, oh, well, it's a bad market. I can't make money, but you know, maybe next year will be better. No, no. We need to find ways to do well now. And so we do have individual investments in stocks that I like that are performing very well. And you know, there are individual stocks in a really big market that if you're a good stock picker, you can find opportunities. But you know, remember, it's been a negative conversation. And I've certainly pointed out a lot of really unpleasant things. But in all of those, there are opportunities to make money. So let's talk about some of them, ways that you can hedge, ways you can make money from all of this horribleness. You know, One is people have the idea that you can only buy the market. You can only own stocks. That's 100% not true. You can short stocks. You can short market indexes. You can buy puts. You can buy uncorrelated things, assets like gold, silver. You can buy oil. Right, deep knowledge investing. We are huge energy positions. The world demand for energy is only going up, and you know, oil among other things is a great option. I think uranium is a phenomenal thing to own. The supply demand curve there is hugely out of balance. We are, by we, I mean the entire world is producing less uranium than we're consuming. And if you're running a nuclear plant, you need that fuel. So the price of uranium, I think, is going to go through the roof. I'm also a huge fan of Bitcoin. And anybody who's listened to any two of the podcasts you and I have done together, you understand my concerns about fiat currency. That fiat currency, that's just a fancy way of saying a government-sponsored currency like the Australian dollar or the British pound or the 
Japanese yen or the US dollar. So, you know, I like Bitcoin. We were buying, and I think I've mentioned this to you, I think I've mentioned GBTC to you, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which was trading at a massive discount to net asset value. It was a way to buy Bitcoin at very cheap prices. We were buying that in June at 14 and a half. And earlier today, that hit 27. And it's still trading at a discount to net asset value. But we think the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the United States, is going to start approving Bitcoin exchange-traded funds. When that happens, that discount collapses. I think there's demand, institutional demand for Bitcoin. So, you know, I've just named, and I'll give you one more. Volatility is very cheap. The ticker for that's the VIX, V-I-X. Volatility is very cheap given all of the huge geopolitical risks and fiscal risks we've been talking about during this conversation. And so, you know, you can't buy the VIX. You can buy options on the VIX. That's way too complicated for most people. The ticker I'm using for that is just VXX, Victor X-ray X-ray. If people want to buy that, please, please, please keep it small. It is volatile. And if the VIX doesn't go up, you will lose money. The losses on that could be huge. It's, this is not the kind of thing that you throw 10% of your portfolio. My position in that is well under 1%. But the point is, you know, listen to this list of things. In addition to a whole bunch of individual stock picks, there are ways to make money in this environment. There are ways to make money in every environment. And rather than complain about it, we're just going to keep finding ways to help our people and our subscribers and our partners and our clients do well regardless of market conditions, including in the inflationary, dangerous conditions that we're in right now. So you're offering listeners of this podcast a deal at the moment where they can um, subscribe and find out more about Deep Knowledge Investing. Tell us a little bit about that deal and how people can find out more about you and Deep Knowledge Investing. Okay. So let's approach this in two different ways. For people who want to know more, uh, please feel free to check out Deep Knowledge Investing, I-N-V-E-S-T-I-N-G.com. Uh, there's a lot of information on the website. I do paywall some of the blog posts where it deals with portfolio positions and how we're helping people make money. But there's a lot of macro writing on there, stuff about how to deal with the current economic environment. So that's a good option. I'm also active on Twitter. It's at Gary underscore Brode, B-R-O-D-E on Twitter. So please feel free to follow there. The other thing is we're thrilled to be working with you, Phil, and Stocks for Beginners and are happy to offer your listeners 50% off for their first subscription, whether it's a month or six months. But you can do it at half price and do it through Phil. He has a coupon code that you can use to get that discount. And we're excited to be partnering with you. And you know, one of the things I love, Phil, is you are all about investor education. And when I started Deep Knowledge Investing, I was originally just working with my peers who are hedge fund managers. And as the business has evolved, we've taken on a lot more people who are people like your listeners, right? They're smart people who know something about finance and want to learn more. And so much more of what we're doing right now is educating people on the markets and the macro environment. And it's not just I'm buying stock X or stock Y, I'm selling stock A and stock B. A lot of what we're doing is explaining to people why. And this is why I think about things. And one of the greatest parts of the job. One of the things I really enjoy is the interaction and the questions I get from our subscribers because they're smart people. They're people like your listeners who are really interested in learning and they're focused and they want to learn more. And so we're always happy to partner with people like yourself who are really trying to help people successfully learn more about investing. Gary Brode, 
Thanks very much for joining me today. And before we go, I should say that coupon code is Stocks for Beginners 50. Right. When you go to Deep Knowledge Investing, click subscribe, fill out the information, and there will be a section in there for coupon code Stocks for Beginners 50. You get 50% off and you'll be supporting Phil as well. So please do that. Gary, thanks very much for joining me again. It's great. Your explanations are so clear and precise. I love hearing them. Thanks, Phil. Always a pleasure to speak with you. And thanks for sharing your audience with me for the day. Thanks for listening to Stocks for Beginners. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.